0: Father God, thank you for drawing us together for this, the second lesson in the book of John, and I pray that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that Holy Spirit, you would be the one to speak and lead us into all truth. Amen. Last week, as we began to look at the book of John, we saw how the first five verses of John's gospel are very similar to the opening verses of Genesis. They also show God as the creator, whose word spoken into the darkness brought light and the possibility of life. The disciple John spoke about how John the Baptist not only gave testimony to the fact that Jesus is the true light for mankind, but that he also clearly revealed Jesus to be the Messiah or the Christ, and you'll remember that that means the anointed one that God had promised to send throughout the Old Testament. Well, let's return to our text in John chapter 1 verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So as John the Baptist begins preaching, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem send some representatives to question him and to ask him who he is. And you see that the very first thing he is careful to do is to tell them that he is not the christ in other words he is not the messiah upon hearing this in verse 21 it says they asked him then who are you are you elijah he said i am not are you the prophet he answered no finally they said who are you give us an answer to take back to those who sent us what do you say about yourself John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. In the Old Testament, Elijah was the prophet of God who did not die but was caught up to heaven on a chariot of fire. And according to prophecy found in Malachi 4 5, the prophet Elijah was expected to return to earth prior to the coming of the Messiah. Now, Although John the Baptist does not claim to literally be Elijah returned to the earth, we know that years before when the angel appeared to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, you can find it in Luke chapter 1 verses 16 to 17, there the angel told him about the son his wife Elizabeth would bear, saying of John the Baptist that he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Not only that, but Jesus also spoke of John the Baptist, saying in Matthew 17 verses 10 through 13 that in a spiritual sense, John the Baptist was a type of Elijah, speaking for God concerning the Anointed One. Though he certainly is like Elijah, John says he's not exactly Elijah come back from heaven. And so those sent by the religious leaders then go on to ask him, are you the prophet? And what they're doing here is referencing something that God spoke through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. There, speaking of the distant future, Moses passes on God's message to his people, In verse 15, saying, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now, if you read Deuteronomy 18, you will see that God goes on to confirm that message a second time in verses 18 through 19. A prophet is someone who speaks God's word to the people. And so the Jews were then expecting one like Moses, who would rise up from among the Jewish people to speak God's word to them. Of course, we know the one whom God would send was Jesus. And he was far, far greater than Moses, because he not only embodied the word of God, according to John's opening verses, he was God. So John the Baptist wants to be very clear that he's not the Messiah, and he does, however, claim to be the fulfillment of a prophecy found in Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 3, and there he says that he is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. You see, he is the one who has come To prepare people's hearts for the one God had promised to send. Verse 24 goes on Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? You see, the religious leaders were familiar with baptism, but it was usually reserved for those converting to Judaism. John, however, was baptizing Jews, which was truly unusual. Not only that, his baptism was a baptism of repentance that left his followers cleansed and ready to hear the words of their coming Messiah. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So again, John the Baptist clearly makes himself less than the Messiah. At that time, the lowliest servant in the house would be the one to loosen the sandals of arriving guests in order to wash their feet. But John says here that he's not even worthy of that lowly position when compared to Christ. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. John declares that his whole ministry has really been about preparing the way for someone greater than he. And here he reveals Christ to be, and I quote him, the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Lambs were very important to the Jewish people because they used them as sacrifices. Lambs were most especially linked to the celebration of Passover as well. This was a yearly reminder of how God had delivered delivered his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt. In the days of the original Passover, God's people had been enslaved, unable to truly worship him. In order to set them free, God brought judgment on the Egyptians in the forms of different plagues, the last of which was the plague of death. However, God instructed Moses that the Jews were to offer a perfect lamb to die in their place as their substitute. The blood of that lamb was then to be painted on the doorposts of their houses, proving that innocent blood had already been shed on their behalf. So that night when death came, God's judgment passed over them because they were covered by the blood of the lamb that had died in their place. The Jewish people understood the importance of the blood of the lamb that purchased their freedom. The idea of the innocent dying on behalf of the guilty is written throughout the Old Testament. If a person broke God's law in the Old Testament, the punishment was death. However, God in his mercy allowed men to offer animal sacrifices as substitutes in their place the punishment that should have been theirs could be upon the lamb instead. The Old Testament solutions to the problem of sin, though, provided only a temporary covering, and they had to be repeated again and again. But the sacrificial system would eventually help the people understand Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because of his death, our debt to God for our sin could finally be paid, and reconciliation with God the Father could be complete and permanent, because the blood of this lamb does not merely cover over sin. No, his sacrifice actually takes it away for those who put their trust in him. And happily, John chapter 1 verse 29 declares that Jesus is not just the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Israel. No, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of mankind across the world. Salvation through him is for Jew and Gentile alike. In the Old Testament, worshippers had to personally identify with the sacrifice that was offered on their behalf, and believe me, it's no different today. We have to personally identify with the Lamb of God if he is to take away our sin. So if you have not done so already, admit to God that you have sinned. Ask him to forgive you. And thank him for the blood of his perfect lamb that makes forgiveness possible. And then just ask him to give you a new life in Christ, because his word promises that he will. In verse 39, John the Baptist tells us that he didn't always know that Jesus was the Messiah, but that this was something God revealed to him as he carried out his calling. In verse 32, John the Baptist explains exactly how that happened. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Another way of translating that verse 34 is to say, "...and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God." Jesus was actually John's cousin, so they knew each other. But even John didn't realize that Jesus was the Messiah at first. God the Father used a sign to show John that Jesus was the one that they'd all been waiting for. But it's very important that we realize John did not see an actual dove land on Jesus. Rather, do you see in the text, he saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. He went on to declare who Jesus was to others. Look at verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. I think it's important that John the Baptist did not jealously guard his disciples, his followers seeing them as being his. He knew that his job was to point them to Christ for they needed to know their Messiah and journey on with Jesus. John was prepared to become less allowing Jesus to become more and you know this really needs to be true of all of us as believers particularly as we seek to try to influence others in God's kingdom. People need to know and follow Jesus rather than they need to follow a particular teacher. These two men followed Jesus because of John's testimony about him. And you may wonder who these two men are. Verse 40 tells us that one was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and the other, who's not identified, is very likely the gospel writer John, who was the brother of James. He too had been a disciple of John the Baptist's, and so he was an eyewitness from the very start. As soon as these two men begin to follow Jesus, the Lord asks them a very interesting question. He says, What do you want? Now, they could have said many things in answer to that. They could have said that they wanted a political leader to deliver them from their oppressors, the Romans, because many Jews really believed that that's who the Messiah would be. But instead, they call him rabbi, which John tells us means teacher. They wanted to learn from Jesus. And what he shared with them obviously had a very big impact on them because Andrew immediately goes to find his brother Simon telling him that he should come because they found the Messiah. And so you see the ongoing process of Jesus's followers bringing other people to him begins right from the start. In verse 42, for the first time, we meet Andrew's brother who went by the name of Simon at that point. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Cephas was a name in Aramaic, which was the local language at the time, and that name meant a stone. When translated into Greek, that name is Petros or Peter in English. But do you see how Jesus says to him, you are Simon, but then goes on to say to him, you will be Cephas or Peter. And that is kind of interesting to me because it shows us that transformation is a process. He isn't Peter yet, but he will be Peter. But that being said, from the very start, Jesus not only sees us for who we are, but he also sees us for who we will become because of his work within us. The group of disciples then began to grow. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can any good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. The fact that Philip refers to Jesus as being the son of Joseph doesn't mean that Jesus really isn't the son of God. Son of Joseph would have just been Jesus's legal name according to the traditions of the time, nothing more. You see, he would have been known to everyone as Jesus bar Joseph. In other words, Jesus, son of Joseph. Of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but we know that he'd grown up living in Nazareth. It's interesting that John reveals in John 12, village that really didn't seem to have anything good to offer, and he was quite sure that nothing good came out of that town. However, he was about to find out differently. Verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You see, Jesus knows Nathanael's heart and the effect of Christ's words Is dramatic. This man not only calls Jesus rabbi, accepting him as his teacher, but he also goes on to call him the Son of God and also the king of Israel, and that's very interesting, because Isaiah 44 verse 6 reveals God himself to be the true king of Israel. Let me read you that verse in Isaiah. It says, Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. In response to Nathanael's exclamation, Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I understand that sounds a little complicated, but let's look at it more closely. Jesus tells Nathanael that he's going to see greater things as he follows him, and then he makes a reference to something in the Old Testament. Jesus not only refers to himself here using the title from Daniel 7, verse 13, the Son of Man, which is really a description of the Messiah, but he also refers to himself as being Jacob's ladder. Let's take a look at that more closely. Jesus speaks here of the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, they're going up and down upon Him. That is, in fact, a reference to something that happened in Genesis 28. When God first revealed himself to Jacob at a place called Bethel, Jacob fell asleep, and we're told in Genesis 28, verse 12, that he, Jacob, had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And after that, God actually went on to reveal to Jacob that he would be with him and would not leave him. But the picture in Jacob's dream of that bridge between God in heaven and man on earth is known as Jacob's ladder. And it is, in fact, a picture of Christ. You see, Jesus is Jacob's ladder. He is the only bridge between man and God. And according to Christ, own words in John 14 verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through him. Well, let's go on to look at John chapter 2, because here we see the very first miracle Jesus ever did, and it was where he turned water into wine. It took place in Nathaniel's hometown of Cana, which was only five miles away from Nazareth. This wedding was not only attended by Jesus and the disciples, but also by Christ's mother. And in fact, it seems that she must have known the family very well, because it seems that Mary may have even been helping with the preparations. Now, it's very important for us to understand several things. Wine was the usual drink of the time, but one part wine used to be mixed with three parts of water, and it was really used to purify the water, and we know this because Paul told Timothy, for example, to take some wine for his stomach, and so it seems he had not been using wine to purify his water, and so he was ill from time to time. So all that to say that I want us to understand that this story really has nothing to do with drunkenness. It is a story, however, about joy and celebration, the joy and celebration that can only come through Christ. Christ's kindness. John 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Wedding feasts in those days could last as long as a week and supplies needed to be brought in by the host for all of the guests. According to the tradition of the time, a person who ran out of food and wine would not only suffer great shame, but they could even be fined by the village council for not providing for their guests. So to run out of anything, no matter how poor you were, would have been a terrible problem for any bride and groom because not only there was there the embarrassment associated with it, but it could have serious financial consequences for them as well. So out of concern for the bride and groom, Mary went on to tell Jesus that they had run out of wine, but notice she doesn't tell Jesus what to do about it. You know, Mary had known from his birth who Jesus was. She knew he was the son of the Most High God. She was worried about this couple, and honestly, she knew that if anyone could help them, it was Jesus. But look at what he says to her in verse 4. Woman, or dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. He calls his mother woman, which was a very respectful way for him to address his mother in that culture. And then he goes on to emphasize that he's working according to his father in heaven's timetable, not anyone else's. Even so, she expects him to act with compassion, which of course we'll see that he does. But she tells the servants at the feast in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. Christ alone has the power to do what others cannot, but the servants are still going to need to obey his commands. And that really speaks to us today because our obedience as his servants often does play a part when the Lord does the work that only he can do. Verse 6. "'Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from twenty to thirty gallons. "'Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. "'Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet.' In Cana, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Miraculously, the groom and the bride were provided for. Jesus turned water into the finest wine. This was Christ's first recorded miracle, but do you see that final verse 11? It tells us that it was a sign through which his glory would be revealed. In other words, there is an additional meaning to this story, and we'll see what that is when we look at it in more detail next time we're together. Join us then. You won't want to miss it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are able to do that which no other can. You can fill our emptiness. You can just overflow us with something that will bring joy to others. We thank you so very much for all that you say to our hearts through your word, and I pray that you would continue to minister to us as we return again and again and again over the future weeks. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.